morning. So I'm going to try to not trip over all of this because now we're doing the podcast and told Russell to make me sound good. So um, is this plugged in? So before we begin, I want to let's let's take a moment. I want to do some um, silent meditation, um, some mindful kind of releasing of thoughts and ideas and things that you may have come in with to make space for um, what potentially may be a transformative message. I hope it is. So if you guys will, you know, close your eyes and uh, try to just meditate on your own uh, breathing and heartbeat. So um, I was talking to Danielle last week, and um, I was seeking some guidance for um, what the message should be and how I should address um, the connecting point for where we've already been um, in the last, what, three or four weeks we've been talking about micromastery. And uh, one of the things that, uh, that she brought up was um, examining what God's or Christ's relationships were um, in the moments between his arrest and his actual crucifixion. And so, um, which I thought was really dynamic. And at, the fir- at first, when she said that, I was like, oh man, there's no way I can do that because I'm not a counselor, I'm not a relationship person. Um, but then God started to speak through his word. I started reading the scriptures and started doing some research and I found some really interesting, can you guys hear me? I don't know if I'm projecting. I found some really interesting things um, in my own study and for those of you who've heard me kind of truth communicate before and talk, um, I'm a huge fan of history, even though I'm not a historian and I'm not an anthropologist, um, but I love history. And um, I do a lot of my lectures at Kincaid uh, for art history. I center them around what I find to be uh, truth and fact and what I also find interesting and things that I feel are insightful for today's times. And so um, I started thinking about um, my relationships um, in light of what Christ um, went through during, during that time period. And so uh, for most of you, I guess, who have studied the Bible before and have looked at like this period of time, um, we're roughly about three weeks out from Easter. And so this time that we look at is uh, called the passion, um, the passion, the passion of Christ, uh, meaning, you know, that he, you know, uh, submitted himself for the glory of God and for the building of his king, his kingdom and for his edification. And so um, I found some really dynamic things. And so I'm just going to jump in and We'll start to deal with the scripture. Um, Can someone open to Matthew 26 and 47? And we're going to start there and begin reading. Would anybody like to read? Doesn't matter who. Matthew 26 and 47. Do I have to volunteer somebody? Okay. Every time I ask somebody to read, I think about, um, there's this minister that's online, this is completely unrelated, but there's this guy, he doesn't read the Bible, he just walks around, and he's like, read. 
and people just read random scriptures and then he just kind of goes off of that. It's like, it's crazy. It's one of those after hours. I don't know. It's, no, it's not that dude. It's not that dude. <laughs> yeah, whenever somebody gets it, you can. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Keep going. Okay, stop right there. Thank you, sister. I appreciate it. All right, so, um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so, so we're going to stop right there. <laughs> they cut and ran. <laughs> so, uh-oh, sorry. Okay, so um, the question that I want to ask today is, um, and we, again, we've been talking about um, Jesus's kind of micromastery of his own emotions. Um, his emotional quotient is what, um, Danielle, were you the first one to, to kind of use that in, or was it Marlon? Which, it doesn't matter, you guys. Marlon taught me about it. Okay, so, so which is a great concept. So the emotional quotient is the same, it's akin to the whole idea of an IQ, intelligence quotient. And so um, one of the things that, um, that, you know, that was taught and brought out in that discussion was the whole idea that Christ um, micromastered and in some ways uh, trumped, you know, um, this whole idea of an emotional quotient. And so he mastered it. And so um, one of the things that we're going to talk about today, or maybe the, pr the, the principal thing, is the whole idea that um, Christ had mastered his EQ so much um, that he was able to use his relationships, bad or good, um, for the good of and the edification of God's kingdom. And so um, the question I wanted to present today was, you know, how was Jesus' micromastery of his interactions and relationship shaped, uh, relationships shaped by his EQ? And so one of the things, you guys got to excuse me because I've never done this on the iPad before. I usually have my clicky deal, but today we're not in the boardroom, so. Okay, so um, one of the things that I really love about Danielle's last, was this your last sermon when you were talking about Jesus being self-aware? Um, that was really powerful to me, and I don't know if that reached anybody else the same way that it reached me, but... Jesus being self-aware. So what does that mean? That means that Jesus was also self-reflective. Yeah. That also means that he was self-tempered. 
And so when you look at the whole idea of who Christ was, um, well, let's, 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 let's break it down for a second. Jesus was half what and half what? Right. And so that means that just as much, well, you know, the God in him was more powerful than the man within him, but he also had human emotions. And knowing that he was, you know, he was half God and knowing that his mission was to be crucified and to be beaten and to be ridiculed, you know, his man side was probably tripping, you know, on the inside, knowing that, okay, in a few days, I'm going to be dead. You know, once I get arrested, that's pretty much it. You know, and on top of that, you know, I'm going back to my previous point, his relationships with people, even the, the ones that he had not developed yet, um, were tempered by this undercurrent of, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to be destroyed for all of these people, you know? And so, <clears throat> you know, his fortitude in completing his father's plan reassured and reinforced how he managed those interactions. And so, you know, I think about the whole idea of what fortitude is. I think about what true grit is and fortitude and having courage, you know, in light and in the face of danger, which many of us don't have. You know, I know that if I was, if I had knowledge of my own death and I had knowledge that my friends were going to betray me, I'd probably do everything I could to jump in place of that, to, to get out of the way of that, if, if you will. You know, run from that scenario, kind of like the disciples did at the end of, of that scripture. You know, they couldn't ran. And so um, <laughs> they literally couldn't ran. So for us, you know, we often, you know, and I just said this, you know, we often substitute fortitude and grit for shortcuts and meaningless interactions. You know, and typically it's because we are less concerned with the end result than we are with the here and now. And so, um, you know, raise your hands if you've ever substituted you know, that long-term thing for the here and now, right? You know, we're thinking about, you know, and I'm not trying to call anybody out, but, you know, what car we're going to drive, you know, what house we're going to get, you know, what can I do for myself and for my own edification? We're not thinking about the glory of God. We're never really thinking about what our mission could be. You know, a lot of times we're always blinded by what's in front of us. You know, what's the old saying? You can't see the forest for the trees. You know, you're usually thinking about what can I get out of a circumstance? And that's human. You know, God designed us that way. But he also gave us free will and he gave us a choice. So during the course of my study, maybe this will work better if I feel silly every time I have to go in. All right, this is as long as we can get. Okay, that's good. Okay, so, you know, over my course of study, I found that there were over 15 interactions between, roughly, between his arrest and the time that he was crucified. And so those 15 interactions took the place of, or took the, they took the form of, you know, his relationships with the 12 disciples who, as we identified already, they ran. Um, uh, we had the disciples, we had the father through prayer. Um, right before he, before he was arrested, where was he? What? He was praying, he was at Gethsemane and he was praying. Um, Judas, who was his boy, was one of the 12. Pretty much betrayed him. He sold him out, you know, for money. The servants who apprehended Jesus. Um, those were Caiaphas' uh, servants who basically went out and they said, we're going to arrest Jesus. You know, which had been a plot that was being developed for a while. Um, the servant whose ear was lopped off. We didn't talk about that. Um, but basically, when they tried to apprehend Jesus, we know that one of the disciples, and I think it was Peter, who basically drew a sword and he was like, okay, I'll try to defend him. And we know that Peter was a bit of a zealot and, you know, probably acted before he thought. Um, then, of course, Peter, um, we know that he denied Christ three times. 
um, which was uh, prophesied by Christ at the Last Supper. Um, Caiaphas, which I already mentioned, who was one of the high priests, the guards, the assembly of the council of elders, teachers, and chief priests, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, who basically was a prefect of Judea, who was a ruler, um, Barabbas, which people don't talk a lot about, but he created a relationship with Barabbas through the fact that he was offered up in light of Christ, in lieu of Christ. Um, Simon from Cyrene, you guys know who that is? You guys remember him from scripture? He's the guy, if you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ, he's the guy that was like shouting at him, like, you know, leave him alone, blah, blah, blah. What were you gonna say? Right, he was the one that was basically, he helped Jesus carry the cross. You know, some people say by force, some people say he, he took pity on what was going on in the crowd. Um, the crowd, there was a crowd of mourners that followed Christ. And typically, and I'm gonna show some images at the end, typically when we think about uh, Christ on his way to the cross, we think about um, the Roman guards who were whipping him and they were behind him. We often fail to remember that there were a lot of people that were there also that witnessed this, this act. Um, and typically, you know, when you read scriptures and when you look at the historical studies of this time period, there were a group of women who were basically following him. You know, some of them said, you know, these were women who had been following him the whole time. And so they were mourning, they were crying, they were weeping, they were shouting to the guards to release him. Um, and then finally, the last relationship that Christ set up was um, with the two criminals. And so we know that one of them was, was uh, basically turned out to be a believer, you know, right before he died. And so, um, you know, each encounter was a test of his EQ. You know, how many times have we tested with our EQ? You know, and we think of it as something that's supposed to temper us. We always react. Each relationship, that's not supposed to do that, that P's supposed to be on the same line. <laughs> each relationship was a reflection of his IE, which is his internal engine. And so arguably his internal engine was what? <laughs> was God, was God, was God, was God, and, and also his, um, his mission, his purpose was his internal engine. That's what drove Christ, probably from the day he was born. Um, I've read some historical studies on Christ and like his personality, and uh, some of the writings, some of the people that have written about Christ, you know, they propose that even as a child, Christ was very kind of motivated and, you know, very wise and this person that you just saw a light on. And I believe that, you know, if you're half man and you're half God, when you came to this, to this planet, you know what's going down. So he was about his business. So one of the relationships that, we, that I studied, bless you, um, in the scripture was the antagonist. I'm going to point out, I think I pulled out five different relationships that I feel like were important in light of what happened to Christ, the crucifixion and then the resurrection. Um, the attack antagonist. I felt that this one was powerful and meaningful because, <clears throat> and I can say, you know, from personal experience, so many times in our lives we have an antagonist and we typically look at that antagonist as just that, just an antagonist. We don't look at that relationship as something that can be beneficial to us. And so Caiaphas was, um, you know, he was among the chief priests, which we already established, you know, and one of the elders that were plotting for the arrest of Jesus. And he didn't care, you know, what was going to happen to Jesus. He was literally out for this dude's blood. Um, scripture, you know, said when he was questioning Jesus, you know, as assembly, once they brought Jesus back to the, to the house, to his crib, you know, they kept asking him, are you the son of God? And Jesus was like, what was, what was his, uh, what was the way he responded? It was very smooth. He says, it, it is as you say, is that what he said? It is as you say. And so, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, just like Eminem. So, um. The crazy thing about this, and I thought this was kind of crazy, was that um, after he said that, what did Caiaphas do? You guys remember? One of them was like blasphemy. 
Yeah, they shouted at him, and Caiaphas was so upset that this dude ripped his clothes off. Like, he was like, ah, like, you know, like, like straight up dude, is that what's about to happen? So, <laughs> so you have to imagine, like, someone being that mad. And I know that any antagonist that I've had, anybody that I've encountered that was mad at me, I don't think I've ever made them that mad. Maybe Stephen one day, she got, like, mad, just, you know, ripped her clothes off. <laughs> um, Channing, one day she got mad, you know, flipped her shoes off, but... <clears throat> I've never, I've never, you know, had a circumstance to where someone ripped their clothes off because they were upset with me. So that tells you how, um, how deeply, you know, Jesus's um, influence affected Caiaphas. You know what I mean? It was negative, but it affected him. You know, and then, you know, at the bottom it says, you know, he was a catalyzing force. He was one of the catalyzing forces behind the eventual crucifixion of Christ. In the scriptures, they talk about that. Caiaphas was one of the people who were plotting from the very beginning when they heard that Jesus was out here teaching this word that was, you know, at the time they thought it was a cult. You know, they figured, you know, this guy, this is blasphemy. This guy is talking about he's the son of God. He's not the Messiah, right? He despised the truth of who Jesus really was. That's crazy. That's really crazy. Think about you have a, you know, you're a person with a mission. You have a plan that God has given you. And someone's despising you because you're telling the truth. And there's no other way to, to fulfill that truth other than for your own death, right? You know, his lack of vision and seeing the truth did not stop the, val the validity, you know, of the truth's integrity. You know what I mean? Like, because Caiaphas didn't believe, it didn't really stop how valid the truth was. The truth was what it was, the truth, that, that Jesus was the son of God. He had come here as an as a offering, you know, to God for man to have that connection back with God, which we didn't have. Right. And so all of these elders, these chief priests, they thought they had the they thought they had the answers. They thought they were, you know, the hot. I don't want to say the other word. They thought they were the business. Right. But they weren't. Jesus was the one who was going to reconcile them to God. With our words, attitudes and actions, we often despise the truth of God and who <clears throat> who has revealed himself to be. And so um, God typically reveals himself to be a certain character, personality and demeanor to us. And typically a lot of times with our own actions or inactions and ability to do things, we're despising the truth of who God has revealed himself to be, right? You know, when you take things into your own hands. The brother. So the brother I, I saw is, uh, I saw this relationship, really all the disciples were brothers to Christ. They were children and students, um, apprentices, if you will. Um, they were in a guild, you know? And Christ was teaching them, you know, what they were going to have to, and imparting in them, pouring into them this thing that they were going to have to do after he, you know, passed away. And I, what I really believe is that when the disciples were roaming the countryside with Christ and he was healing, they were caught up in the limelight. You know, I think of, um, and I hate to say Kanye West, but he's like one of the first ones that just pops into my brain. But I think about, you know, a performer or entertainer like Kanye. His boys are rolling with him. <laughs> you mouth something over there. <laughs> His boys are rolling with him, and all they can see is probably the fame and the fortune and all this attention. And they're like, yes, Kanye, whatever, you know, whatever you want, bro. You want to go eat Chipotle? Let's do it, bro. Let's do it. Oh, you want to go rock it out? You want to do that? What was that dance he was doing? You know, you want to do the whatever the dance? <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's film it. I'll get on my camera. We'll put it up on social media. Um, and, I, and I feel like the disciples were, um, were like that. But within that, that span of time, um, you know, Jesus probably developed a very deep relationship with each of them. And some of them he was even closer to. John was one of them. You know, they talked about, or John talked about himself in the, in the Gospels as the one that, that he loved, right? Um, Peter, who was the zealot, 
I guess he was the, that a pro, I guess that's a proper word to, to describe him as. He was the person who acted first and then asked questions later. You know, he was the one who basically became one of the principal members of the church. And so Simon Peter, um, you know, as I, as I stated, one of the closest ones to Christ, um, he was one of the ones that was with him and actually went back after they had arrested him. So uh, can someone turn to Luke 22 and 54? And let's read a few pieces out of this scripture. Or you can read it from up here if you can see it. It's kind of tiny. <laughs> kind of tiny up there. Yeah, 22 and 54. Am I, am I in y'all's way? Am I blocking y'all? Okay. Anybody? Read it. <laughs> yeah, read it. Then, uh, seizing him, they laid him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled, and when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. All right, stop right there. Read. I just want to do that. <laughs> go ahead. I just want you to do that. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, she said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, and for he is a, Gal a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. You know, and so the crazy thing about this is that, you know, Peter having this established relationship with Christ, um, you know, he went outside and wept. You know, he knew what was going to happen. Like Christ actually predicted, you know, that this was going to happen. And so to me, again, it's like that, that, again, I hate to bring Kanye into this, but the Kanye relationship, you know, He's speaking to them, and I, and I think that in a lot of ways, they didn't even, it didn't register to them what the truth of the situation was, the truth of the circumstance. And then I started thinking, like, man, what did that look like for Peter to be there in that firelight? He, you know, some scripture, some um, renditions of the scripture talk about the whole idea that, uh, that Peter was cursing, and he was, you know, basically pushing himself away from the people, like very physical. You know, and I thought about what did that look like for Christ, for Christ to gaze at Peter after, you know, he said, you know, this is going to happen. You know, you denied that it was going to happen. This is fulfilling prophecy. And so I had to throw this in here. It was like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it was. He was like. <laughs> you know. And um, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have time to do this on Photoshop, but I even thought about, you know, you know Jesus may have, like, made a tear come down, a little tear. <laughs> I tell you it was going to happen, player. I tell you it was going to happen. <laughs> so, you know, the, <laughs> the closeness of his relationship blinded him from the reality of the circumstance. You know what I mean? Like the whole idea that uh, Peter was his boy, he was rolling with him, and he knew, who he, was, he knew he was the Messiah, otherwise he wouldn't have been following him. But I think his friendship, his brotherhood, basically blinded him 
from what was going to happen. He was like, no, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. And I think that's why even afterwards he went back to investigate. You know, he was like, is this going to happen? You know, is this, is this about to go down? Is he going to be crucified at the end of this? The prefect. And so the prefect was uh, Pontius Pilate, and we talked about him as basically he's a prefect of Judea. He was a ruler um, at the time period. And so when we look at the Roman Empire, um, it was broken up. It wasn't just this vast empire where you had one ruler. You had many people, kind of like a modern government. You had many people that were in the empire, and they were kind of these governors and you know, mayors of towns and things of that nature. And so Pontius Pilate, though he wasn't the emperor, he, he, he worked under Emperor Tiberius at the time period. Um, he wasn't the most powerful man, but he definitely had some pull. And so the first meeting that, um, that uh, I was going to say Judas, that Jesus had um, with anybody that was a ruler was with Pontius Pilate. Um, and actually, he met with him twice. Um, second time, as we know, was the time when Pontius Pilate was like, you know, well, you guys want him dead, then, you know, I'm going to let him go and, you know, do what you do. But I wash my hands, you know, of this circumstance, you know, and literally wash his hands or tried to wash his hands clean of Jesus's blood. Um, but originally, what was really remarkable about this, if you read scripture, he originally attempted to lobby for Jesus's freedom. You know, he was basically, I feel like, to me, and I may be wrong, but I feel like that he pitied Christ. Like, he literally pitied him because he saw these people dragging him in. They had beat him up pretty bad. Um, when, he, when Jesus was with uh, Caiaphas's um, servants, you know, they were kicking him. They were like, oh, you know, you know, prophesy to this. You know, can you see who's hitting you? You know, they were taunting him. And so he was pretty beat up. He probably was bleeding and torn and, you know, clothes were probably torn. And uh, Pontius Pilate was basically like, you know, you guys don't really want to kill this cat. Like, he's, you know, he's nothing. You know, you don't want to kill him. To him, it probably was also like the equivalent of us bringing a homeless person down to City Hall and saying, Mayor, this dude is, you know, the mastermind of all these crimes, you know, and the mayor looking at him and pitying him and saying, you know what, just let him go, you know? Um, but in the end, his position and power meant nothing in the face of Jesus' destiny on both sides of that. You know, the most powerful um, entity at this time was Christ and God's uh, relationship to him, the, the power that God had given to Christ. Um, and Pontius Pilate was completely unaware of this, um, and though he, he tried to lobby, regardless of the circumstance, it was still nothing, you know, in light of what was going to happen, the circumstance. The man on his own path. And so we talked about um, Simon from Cyrene, um, and again, he was the individual who was walking basically on his way, minding his own business, and saw this crowd, you know, and saw this man that was dragging this cross, he was getting beat, um, I was going to show you guys a scene from The Passion of the Christ, but it was a little bit too gory. Um, by this time period, you know, they had whipped him. Um, and they were using this. I forgot the name of this. I'm just going to describe it to you. I think when we did the, remember when we did the, the cross exercise and I was talking about the crucifixion? Um, I had gone into um, this, this period where I was really studying uh, Roman torture. And the Romans were crazy, man. And I don't mean that in a joking way. They were insane. Some of the things they came up with. Well, the whip that they used on Jesus um, was not a whip that you think of. Not, it's not like the whip that they had in Roots. That was merciful in comparison to what the Romans had. The, Rom the Romans had this thing, it had these claws at the end. The what? There you go, the cat of nine tails. And um, basically, they're whipping, and as they pull back, it's pulling flesh. And eventually, it's pulling muscle. And eventually, you're hitting bone to the point where you're hemorrhaging so much blood. And Jesus had already been beat to this point, to where he was probably hemorrhaging, yeah. and he was still going. 
you know. And so when um, Simon encountered Jesus, you know, he was on his way from the countryside um, and he was forced to carry Jesus' cross. And so, you know, again, in the scene from the Passion, we don't know if this was historically accurate, um, but the way that it looked in the scene was that, um, come on up here, we're gonna do a demonstration. <laughs> we're gonna do a demonstration. I keep forgetting this cord is here. All right, come on over here, Russell. So Russell, you're gonna be our cross today. <laughs> okay, so you're Simon from Cyrene, so I want you to stand over there. So basically what happened is, go ahead, lean on me, lean on me. I'm not gonna let you fall. So Jesus is dragging this cross. I don't know how much this brother weighs, but he's dragging him. And I'm just giving, I'm just giving visualization to this. And Russell is walking with me. These crosses were very heavy. And so you, you just lean on me. You, I'm not gonna, come on, dude, we was working out yesterday. So the cross is laying on me. And so Simon from Cyrene came over to the other side and basically put his arm under the cross and then under Jesus and literally was dragging him along with this cross. You know, and he went all the way up. Thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> he went, he went, I don't know if that was a good illustration, but I just wanted to do that. Um, <laughs> he went all the way up to the place where they were crucified with him. And so I started researching this even further. And when they, um, when they got there, some people actually even, bless you, have actually even written that they believe that, um, that this Simon was crucified with Christ. Like they just put him in there with them, which I don't think that that was, I don't think that was historically accurate, but some people that, that, that saw this, the story may have gotten passed down that, I mean, I think at this point that they were whipping Christ, they probably started whipping Simon also. They were probably like, get your, keep going, you know? These Roman soldiers, they were merciless. They didn't care. Um, and so I started thinking about that relationship and what that meant. And then the connection to who we are and like how we are, you know, we look at the cross as this, let me go forward. I'm going to go forward and I'm going to go back. So, so, so basically, you know, we always look at the cross as like a burden. Marlon and I were talking about this like two days ago. The, the cross, you know, for, for most people's purposes, it was a burden to, to Christ. And then, you know, some people who have read this story about Simon from Cyrene, they think of it as a burden to Simon for, for they think of it as a, as a burden to Simon from Cyrene. But to me, you know, the cross wasn't a burden. It was his purpose, right? The whole idea of why Christ was here was not to be, you know, baby Jesus to, to his mom. It wasn't to be this figure that was just teaching to the disciples. That was part of his mission. But part of the, the, the big thing of his mission was to be crucified so that we could be reconciled unto, unto God. And so the cross was not a burden. It was his purpose. And so, you know, I started thinking about the intersection of that. And so I'm going to go back. Sorry, guys. Uh-oh. Y'all didn't see the whole thing. Forget everything you just saw. Forget everything you just saw. Here, let me put this up. I'm sorry. Okay, we'll just stop right there. We'll just do right there. Okay, so basically I started thinking about this idea that um, the circumstance of what brought Simon to Cyrene, uh, from Cyrene there, was the idea that he had a purpose in this. And to me, it was just this whole relationship of 
he took compassion on the one who was who was the Christ, who was the Messiah, you know, and he undergirded what his mission was. I mean, he was completely innocent. He could have just walked off. He didn't have to say anything. He had to do anything. Um, you know, probably after they linked him up to that to that cross, you know, he didn't have a choice. Um, but within that was his purpose also, you know, undergirding what Christ Christ's real mission was. You know, I think about our relationship to God and us not knowing and not thinking about what we're supposed to be doing to undergird, you know what I mean, that mission of what Christ wants us to do here on earth. So I'm going to skip again. So then my final relationship that I thought about and started studying was the accused. And those were the two um, thieves that were basically crucified with Christ. And so, you know, again, I was looking at um, like the art historical kind of um, background of the way that people uh, present Christ. And typically you see Christ. We know that Christ was crucified with two other individuals. And more than likely, he was in a he was in a um, circumstance to where other people had been crucified behind them because this was like basically a torture field. Um, and so um, you don't see images of these two thieves, but we do know from studying scripture that there was a conversation that took place. I think this is a little bit more legible. So would someone like to read this from the board? Brother, brother don't join in the school talk. Um, you're supposed to be the anointed one, right? Well, do it. Rescue yourself and us. But the other criminal told him to be quiet. Don't you have any fear of God at all? You're getting the same death sentence he is. We're getting what we deserve since we've committed crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong at all. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, please remember me. And Jesus says, I promise you that this day you will be with me in paradise. I promise you that this very day you will be with me in paradise, which is crazy considering the fact that he was hanging up on the cross. And again, we have one individual who was intersecting with God. This gentleman basically said, he's hanging here with us. Like he can't do anything. And then it shouts to Jesus, well, if you can do something, why don't you just do it, right? And so Jesus was probably like, man, <laughs> you have no idea, you know? And then he turns and addresses the other individual who's basically in the same circumstance knows what's about to happen to him. He's going to bleed out and die. It wasn't an instantaneous death either, you know, not to go back into the gory details. Um, but they knew they were going to hang there for a little bit and, put, and potentially be, you know, mocked even more, tortured even more while they hang there. Um, but then he asked, he, he'll ask, he asked Jesus, can you take me with you? Can I have a seat in paradise with you? And Jesus agrees, right? Isn't that amazing? You know, they had been going through, and probably they had been going through maybe even worse pain than Jesus you know, leading up to this point. And this guy, we don't know, I don't know the historical background, I don't know if this was a person who may have intersected with Jesus before, he may have heard his message, but at some point, something Jesus said or did made him believe in his mission, right? And the crazy thing about it is, is that a lot of us knowing what Jesus has done, seeing what Jesus has done, we still refuse to believe with our actions and our thoughts. You know what I mean? How crazy is that? And we're not being beaten or hung or anything like that. We have complete free will, you know? His body was anguished, but his connections and reactions were the epitome of solace. You know, and I started thinking about Jesus' final um, relationship in the time, you know, before his crucifixion, and it was pretty much back with himself. You know, beginning with his prayer and ending with 
you know, himself. And so he's talking to himself. He's talking to God. But within that, he had to have solace, you know. And the whole idea of connecting to God and, and being okay with the mission that God had given him was the solace. You know, that connecting force to me was his solace. And so my question to you is, you know, is solace within you in the face of anguish? You know, when you've been beaten, when you've been beat up, when somebody is kicking you down, you have dirt thrown in your face, people are lying on you, which that did happen to Christ. Um, you have people passing away around you. Um, sickness, whatever, you name it. Do you have solace within your body during that time of anguish? Um, and so within that, my charge to you, my imperative is, you know, to find deep and meaningful solace at the right time through your relationship with God. You know, you have to, and I know that sounds so elementary, but you have to always remember that it's a very simple thing. I always think about like when Siva and I cook, or when I cook, <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's always talking about how she loves the dishes that I make that are simple. You know, she likes when I just grill some chicken and make some rice and make vegetables, you know, as opposed to when I, I mean, I can, get, I can throw down, you know, I can do other things. We're going to talk about that. But she loves, <laughs> she loves it when, when I cook simply, you know, and I, and I think about our relationship with God as a simple meal. Like a lot of times we try to complex, we make it more complex than what it is. You know, we add all this stuff to it, all these spices and stuff that shouldn't even be there. And they have nothing to do with our relationship with God. That was one of the reasons, you know, Marlon was talking about um, us coming to awakening. That was one of the reasons why we fell in love with his family, because there wasn't a lot of complexity. There was complexity within the simplicity, but for the overhanging umbrella, it was simple. It was a direct connection to God and to the spirit of who God is. Uh-oh, I got a low battery. So I want you guys to be self-aware, self-reflective, and most of all, self-tempered in this time um, before Easter and once we kind of get to that point. I want you guys to think about your relationships and how you interact. But most importantly, I want you to think about your relationship with Almighty, with God. Um, you know, and as I said before, too often do we kind of get ourselves, we corner ourselves to the point where we don't have a relationship with him. We're constantly questioning you know, what it is that we're supposed to be doing. I know for me, it's a daily thing, like literally every day. I, you know, I laugh sometimes, I get angry sometimes when my wife is, we're talking and she, Sometimes I think that she thinks that I, I just know for a fact that I'm supposed to be this artist. And I know within me, and I'm just being transparent, within me, that's always a question. That's a daily grind, it's a daily struggle. You know? But I know that in this thing that I do, with art, with teaching, with whatever it is that God calls me to do, that there is a purpose. There's a reason why we're here. There's a reason why I'm making the art that I make. There's a reason why I do what I do. There's a reason why Marlon picks up a camera and why he travels to Duke, why Danielle is the fantastic producer that she is and teacher that she is. And for every one of you, there is a reason why God has called you to do what you're supposed to do. You know, and within that, you've developed relationships that you have to be a good steward of. You know, let's not forget that piece, that component. Because within that story, Jesus was a good steward of those relationships. He didn't wild out. He didn't say, legion of angels, come and destroy everybody. I'm out of here. At no point did he say that, and he could have, right? And so for us, we bear that same responsibility to be that way. So I'm going to share with you guys. I bet you guys thought I wasn't going to share no art with you. Yeah. Boom, here it is. <laughs> so 
I pulled out some um, take out your notepads class. We're going to have a quiz on this next week. Uh, <laughs> so I pulled out some images that I thought, let me move over. I've been in y'all's way the whole time. OK, so I pulled out some images that, um, that I thought were great illustrations of these relationships and these points in time before um, Jesus' crucifixion. And then I pulled in two images that I felt like were great reflections afterwards. And so this is a sculptor, one of my favorite pieces by Tillman Ryman Schneider. I believe he's, um, he's German. And um, this is called an altar piece. It's called the Holy Altar of the Blood. Holy Blood Altar. Um, What's really remarkable about this piece, well, first of all, I don't know how accurate this is, but it was built to hold, uh, it's a reliquary. And so it's built to hold like a little droplet of Jesus' blood. I don't know how they would have gotten it. I mean, obviously, you know. And so, what's that? That's what a reliquary is. And so I'm just gonna give y'all a brief history lesson. So typically when you run to a reliquary, it's holding something. It's supposed to hold something. And so if you go travel to Europe or anywhere in Spain or just anywhere where there's ancient art from antiquity, a reliquary means there's a prize inside. Right? Um, when you guys look at this piece, um, it's supposed to be the Last Supper. So this is the altarpiece. This is the whole thing. Right? I don't know the exact dimensions, but I would venture to say it's over eight feet tall. And it opens up its functions. It actually opens up. What's really cool about this piece is that it's all carved. All of this is carved. This is wood. Um, no, it's probably several pieces, but there are probably some, some chunks of it that are made from one piece. Um, and the, the virtuosity of this piece, I'm not going to get all off into the art history of it, but the virtuosity of this piece is that this, if you look at the individual faces, they're all, they all look like different people, which during that time period, you didn't see a lot of pieces that were done in that way. Like they were just like, okay, one person, two person, and they look very similar. Within this, it's very neoclassical. Like it's, there's, very, there's a very humanizing approach to this. So that's the Last Supper. This is Duccio, The Arrest of Jesus. This is a fresco from the 1300s. And so um, Duccio was commissioned to, to do several panels during this time period. And um, fresco painting is a very um, remarkable thing. There's two types of fresco. I'm just giving y'all the history. I know you don't want to hear all this. Um, but there's this, this, this process called wet and dry fresco. Wet fresco is probably the most difficult to paint in because what happens is they put down plaster and these dudes come in, they do what's called a giornata, which is a, it's an Italian word for a day, for what they can do in a day. And so they have to do all these details, they have to do all this shading, everything in one day wow. while it's drying. And so there are no take backs. <laughs> and so these guys were masters. They were true masters at what they did. You know, and then sometimes they would come back and they would do a dry <coughs> fresco process, which means they would lay in details over it. But the wet fresco process is so um, crazy. And so this is The Arrest of Jesus by Duccio. Beautiful piece. Um, and also, these are very Euro Eurocentric, so. Um, Caravaggio, and what I mean by Eurocentric, I'll talk about it with this, is that most of these, so all these look different, right? They're all very unique. The reason why they're so unique is because they're contemporaneous for the time period. And so typically, painters, just like myself or any other artist, they're creating work that is, it's gonna have a connection to the people who's alive during that time period and living in the area. So the dress, the architecture, everything that's in there is contemporaneous, okay? So Caravaggio, one of my favorite artists, great painter of light. Um, this is the denial of St. Peter. So this is his vision of what he thinks happened and what it looked like when St. Peter was like, no, no, I don't know him, I don't know him, when he cursed. You know, this being St. Peter, you know, and then this being the girl who accused him of being one of Jesus' homies. Right. 
Duccio, this is another one of the panels that he was commissioned, Christ Before Pilate. Uh, beautiful piece. And so this was actually done, I like to make fun of what they were doing, because this is before they had an understanding of linear perspective, which is mathematical perspective, meaning that everything converges onto a, a vanishing point. And so they were just doing what they could to create architectural space. But what's really remarkable about this is the way that they, they really tried to tell the narrative in the grouping of people and the way that they're interacting. Very beautiful piece, also a fresco. This is Salvador Dali. You guys have probably seen this. Uh, Corpus Hypercubus. Um, I've read some really kind of outlandish theories about what this could, like the double meaning of this. Really wonderful piece because, again, you know, this is kind of like what I said before. When you look at um, artwork that deals with contemporary and from antiquity that deals with Christianity, you just see the crucified Christ. You never really see, you know, the other two thieves. I mean, the other two people who were crucified with him. And so, but what I love about this is that this figure obviously is supposed to be Mary looking at him and lamenting over his death as he's being tortured. It's a really beautiful piece and very, very contemporary for us. Okay, I think this may be the last one. This is the deposition by Roger Vander Waden. Um, so within this piece, uh, there's another theory I'm gonna throw out there. You guys need to be taking notes. Um, it's called Contrapusto. Um, contraposto is basically what happens when the human body, like when the muscles flex and do different things, that's, a, that's something, that's an idea that they had during the classical period, during the Greek time periods. So with Roger Vander Waden, basically he's trying to illustrate that, you know, with this painting. But what's beautiful about this, and this really falls into the whole idea of relationships and connections, is that this is Mary. If you look at her, she's reflecting what is happening with Christ as he's being deposed from the cross. And so I, I have to always, I, I think that, you know, man, like that's probably how she felt. Like she felt like dying, even unto the point where like she's pale. Yeah. His skin is lifelike. Yeah. She looks like she's dead, yeah. right? And so we have to think about the whole idea that that was her connection to him. You know, very theatrical. That might be my last one. Oh, no, 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 okay, so this is Perugino. This is the last one, I promise. This is Perugino. <laughs> I don't know if anybody has seen this. This is a great piece. This is actually from the, the Italian Renaissance, 1461, 1481. Um, it's called The Delivery of the Keys to St. Peter. And so this is the guy who ran out <laughs> and then came back, you know, and this is Christ. And so the illustration of this, um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard me talk about this before. I've done several pieces, but the whole idea of papal infallibility. So the whole idea of the Pope, you know, the, the seed of Christ um, in, on earthly form comes from Peter, like they believe Peter to be the very first pope, right? The very first leader of the church. And so um, this, piece, this piece is a great illustration, not only that, but the fact that Christ was so close to Peter that he's giving, he's delivering the keys of the kingdom to Peter here on earth, which is wonderful. So anyway, that's my last uh, piece and I'm gonna show you guys and I'm gonna get out of here. Uh, but thank you guys, you know, and again, I just wanna reiterate the imperative to think about your relationship to God. Think about in this time of reflection before Easter, what that means. All right. Thank you guys.